Walter Belper, the team on brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the managing editor of Fangraphs, making his weekly appearance on Fangraphs Audio. His name is Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron, of course, every week of Fangraphs Audio, or at least most weeks on Fangraphs Audio, analyzes all baseball. To begin the week, Dave Cameron has written a, uh, an article <laughs> asking a scholarly question, I believe, uh, which is, why do the Angels suck? Uh, he gives a number of reasons for that in that same piece, which appears in the electronic pages of Fangraphs on Monday. Uh, however, in my capacity as podcast host, what I do is help to plumb the depths of, of this sort of piece, is to plumb the depths, ask questions, follow up on loose ends, and ultimately, if possible, uh, get Dave Cameron to contradict himself. Will he? Well, uh, one uh, one must listen to find out. He doesn't, actually. But listen anyway. In any case, what is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. It's featuring managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. I don't know. Were you saying something? I was saying lots of things. Could you hear me? I could hear you, and then you stopped talking, and then you hung up on me. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Man, you really summed it up. Yeah. <laughs> hey, <clears throat> what do you say we get, uh, we start summing up? Well, no, I don't really want to sum up. I want to, uh, I want to, I want to investigate, uh, already baseball. Immediately, right as we begin here. Okay. Uh, but, uh, I want you to help me analyze all analyze all uh, Los Angeles Angels. So you're the one doing the analyzing this week. I'm just your assistant. No, no. I want you to help me. I want you to help me. analyze all baseball. I listen. I'm kind of like a man. All right. So typically, you are the editor of the of the site, the managing editor, and I'm a, I'm an underling of some description, right? Yeah, I think that's actually what it says on your business card. Yeah, underlying a sun description. No, actually, it says leisure gentleman. I've given you one of those yeah. business cards. Yeah, I, I have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, but typically, so now we're on now we're on um, my my turf, as it were, because it's a podcast. So right. I'm gonna do your turf, a, your turf is weird. Yeah, it's, it's going it's to be odd place. As most uh, manager, as most great managers do, I'm going to um, direct you, and then I'm going to. Re- Essentially, uh, I'm going to allow you to do the bulk of the work, but under my guidance, under my careful guidance. Right. So you're uh, you're outsourcing. Yeah, I'm outsourcing, but then I will take credit for most of the the product, provided it's good. If it's not, I'll blame you. Right. This so doesn't seem how middle management works. It does. Yeah. So let's talk about the Angels. They're bad. <laughs> I guess they're gonna what? They're gonna lose 100 games or something like that. Well, they're not gonna lose 100 games. They're, they might lose 90. Uh, unless they have a strong finish, they're gonna finish below 500. Right, which is bad for a team that has uh, spent what 140 million dollars this year. Yeah, a little more than 140 million, and uh, that's with like some extremely backloaded contracts. But the 140 million would pain to come in the future. Right, uh, not Bobby Bonilla size, right? But uh, something. Uh, I don't know. Josh Hamilton's uh, I think do 30 million in the last year of his deal. Pools getting 30 plus million at the end of that contract. I think even C.J. Wilson's deal is pretty backloaded. Like. You know, those, those large contracts they handed us, those free agents, are actually not paying those players all that much money this year. I think uh, Hamilton and Poole combined to make like $33 million in salary this year, and by the end of those contracts, uh, it'll be, you know, more like 50 or $60 million. Uh, The backloaded contracts, what is the, um, I guess, what is the advantage of them, or what is the purpose of them, or the role of them, other than reflecting what a player 
might be worth in the future given the uh, inflation? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's really much of a factor. Uh, I think generally uh, teams are just borrowing from their own future. So you, you look at a backloaded contract as kind of a, a chance to loan yourself money. Uh, so you say, okay, I have a $130 million payroll this year, but I'm going to try and win. Uh, and I want to try and, you know, maybe have an effective payroll of 160, 170 million in order to keep up with the Dodgers and the Yankees and, uh, Red Sox. So how do I find an extra 30 or 40 million dollars? I mean, one way to do it is to have, you know, a whole bunch of Mike Trouts to make nothing and play really well. If you don't have a whole bunch of Mike Trouts, the other way to do it is to sign players to long-term contracts and then backload the deals so that you're not paying a whole lot of money in, in current value. Uh, but you're getting a star player in order to, you know, make a run. So when you backload a contract, you're basically just, it's, it's not really all that different than trading prospects for like a rental. You're taking some amount of future value, transferring it to your, your current year in order to try and improve your chances of making a run, and then you'll just eat the long-term cost, uh, that you accrued during the year that you underpaid the player. Yeah, and what do you do, what do you do then? You, you're, you, you, you're you, bad? You, yeah, you're bad. You're, you become the Phillies. You become the Phillies? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it's not that. And I mean, we see this now with. Uh, I mean, even even if we were to divorce ourselves from the A Rod mess, right? Uh, he's he signed for two or three more years. Uh, uh, I think it's three. Yeah, uh, like three. eighty million dollars. Right. Exactly. And uh, that's a lot. And he's yeah. not going to be worth that. So, but this that's yeah. that helped the Yankees win, I guess, five years ago, three years ago. Yeah, well, theoretically. I mean, I think when he opted out, that was kind of the peak. They probably should have let him walk at that point. But I mean, that kind of contract. I think the Pools one, especially a pretty decent example, right? So, like, last year, uh, the Angels wanted to make a run. Uh, so they gave Pools this 10-year, $240 million contract. But I think last year, he only made, like, $17 million or something. You, I mean, you know, Albert Pools wasn't Albert Pools last year, but he was worth a lot more than $17 million. He was still a pretty good player. Uh, there's no way they could have signed him for 117 So they were, you know, adding a, a premium first baseman to a team they thought could win, uh, and they were borrowing from their, you know, 2019, 2020, 21 payrolls and saying, you know, we're going to get Pujols at a discount now, and we're going to pay him a premium when he's 40 and terrible. I don't think they anticipated he was going to be 32 and terrible. Right. So that's not good. Now, uh, of course, Albert Pujols is not the only problem with the team. No. Um, uh, Josh Hamilton has not been great. Um, no. you, you know, you note uh, several things. You, in this piece today, you sort of discuss what's made them bad and what's made them good. Uh, the idea is to investigate some of those points more closely. You, you made one comment uh, that, that I thought uh, might merit further discussion, which was this: you said it, um, you said it would it would actually be unusual if someone were not held responsible for a hundred forty million dollar failure. Uh, yeah. So the question becomes. Um, and there might be a difference between the popular assessment of this and maybe a more objective one. But whose fault is it? Is it Artie Moreno, who, you know, theoretically wanted to acquire some of these higher-end players? Uh, is it Jerry DePoto? Uh, because he's the one, who, you know, whose name is attached to the moves. And um, as you you, may, you point out, uh, that none of his moves have really gone particularly well. Or is it Mike Sosha, who used to or appeared at some point uh, to have a – to have a magical effect on his teams, I think somewhere like over what, like a five or seven year span of plus eight wins over the Pythagorean record. Yeah, I think when uh, I, I linked to a Beyond the Box score study from last year, last spring, so now the data is you know almost two years old. But I think at that point it's uh, wins above kind of expected record for managers of all time 
uh, Mike Sosia was like plus 25 or something. And that was like in a 10 year span, uh, which put him as like the, the third best manager in history by this one metric. Yeah. Why do you want to give managers credit for this or not? But you know, a plus 25 win above expectation over a de- uh, decade worth of time is a lot of wins. Right. Uh... So, so, so that's what he's done, but of course uh, they're sort of the opposite uh, in all of the ways that um, a team, uh, the ways that a team can diverge from their expected win-loss record. The, the Angels have sort of nailed it down this year. They're 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 a poor clutch team. I think the bullpen's been poor. What are the other ways? Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing that Sosie got credit for uh, in terms of when people were trying to explain why his teams kept beating staggering expectation is that they were really good base runners or really aggressive base runners. They took the extra base a lot, and so therefore they turned more of their uh, run-scoring opposition into actual runs, and they were able to distribute you know, their runs into high-leverage situations by stealing bases late in the game when they were down by a run. Um, you know, I think that research has shown that wasn't really true. The Angel, which haven't been a very good base running team for a while, uh, and a lot of the guys who were considered really good base runners, like Tori Hunter, were actually kind of atrocious, and they ran themselves into a lot of outs. Uh, but this year, even with Mike Trout, who's you know, probably the best or second-best base runner in baseball, uh, the Angels have basically been an average base running team. So all the things that Sochi has been giving credit for has failed. Well, with regard to Trout, you say he's best base what, what is the sort of range? Uh, what's, the, what's the best base runner in baseball worth in terms of rin, runs or wins? Yeah, I think this year Jacoby Ellsbury is leading in our base running metrics with about plus 10 runs. Uh, a lot of that's because he's been super efficient at stealing bases. He's like, I don't know, 37 for 41 or something. And he also takes the extra base and scores from second on singles a lot. Uh, but usually I think the best base runner's trial might have been like plus 15 last year. Uh, okay. But that was absurd. And he hasn't been able to do that again. But I think it's generally plus 10 runs on the positive side to about negative 5 or on the, on the minus side. I actually wrote a piece on USS Mariner last night about Kendris Morales, who's uh, probably unquestionably the worst base runner in Major League Baseball. And over his career, he did about negative seven runs uh, per 600 play appearances. So, you know, not quite negative 10 on the on the bottom end, of, but, you know, it's kind of like a 20-run swing from one side to the other. And what do, you, what do you think the true talent swing is? Or is that is that what you're sort of assessing there? Well, I think Morales is probably pretty close to a negative seven or a negative eight. I mean, he's really awful. I mean, he's slow and he doesn't really try that hard, whether it's because of his ankles or, you know, health concerns, whatever it is. He doesn't really run very hard and he's slow, which is, you know, not a great combination. Yeah, not great. Uh, so, 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 I think, you know, on the higher side, it's tough to determine true talent, right? Because this is a thing that peaks really early. So a 21 year old like Mike Trout might show up and be like a crazy plus 15 runner for a couple of years and then uh, you know, maybe he's a plus eight, you know, plus nine. Was that regression? Like, did he, is a, you know, was the plus 15 just kind of a, a spike that he couldn't sustain, or did he just get, you know, larger and add a little more muscle and slow down? I mean, that's kind of a, a chicken or egg question. So I don't know that we know exactly, uh, you know, how much of that was just regression to the mean versus, you know, Kyle's body just changing and maybe not being quite as good a base runner as he used to be. Maybe he ate not enough chicken, but too many eggs. They, uh, they have different right. physical properties, or, uh, they're different. The nutritional value is different of chicken and eggs, right. even though one, yeah. the latter becomes the former. Right. I'm glad you added nutritional value because I thought you were trying to like break news that a chicken and an egg were different things. <laughs> well, I guess they are sort of different things, but it they is, are very, very different things. One, yeah. one has feathers and a beak, and, and you know runs around, and the other thing is like you can spin, and you know it's like a top. Right. But give the egg enough time, you know, right. and it'll look a lot like that chicken. Uh, well, depending on the egg, right? Like, there are eggs that don't become chicken. Yeah, I'm talking about the kind that do. Right. 
I, I, I don't eat those kind. Okay. Um, oh, wait, wait. One more question uh, okay. with regard to base running, um, which is like – this is like a tangent off a tangent. Um, but – that should be the new name of the podcast. Uh, yeah, tangent. Yeah, right. But it's, I think it's an interesting question. If you had to uh, speculate wildly, uh, and I don't know if how you would ever. I guess you could do it objectively somehow, but you would need like uh, f- uh, home to first running times. If you were to speculate on the runners, like the so you, you said Morales. The problem with Morales, Kendra Morales, Kendris Morales, is that he's both slow and d- doesn't give. Great effort yeah. on the base pass, and maybe he's not even maybe he's not savvy about it either. Right. We could yeah. say it's the what it's the worst trifecta possible. Yeah, he is like the triple crown of terrible base running. If you could think think of uh, the best base runner who has the least in the way of physical tools, and then vice versa, the worst base runner with what you would assume would be the most excellent physical tools. And how about this? You're not allowed to pick a mariner in either one. Yeah. Uh, okay, so the best base runner with without physical tools. So this is basically a guy who uh, steals a bunch of bases and, and advances a lot on instincts and not so much on speed. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of a tricky one. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not allowed to choose a Mariner, can I pick a player who played for the Mariners <laughs> yeah, this is, at right, one we'll point say, in time? Just say so. Because uh, I think you know, Farris actually wrote an article about this a few months ago about how uh, John Jaso, uh, the A's, actually referred to him as maybe their best base runner overall. And you know, he's a catcher; he's not fast at all. Uh, he's not very athletic. Uh, you look at him, and this is not a guy you expect to take an extra base. But uh, you know, Jaso is kind of praised universally for his base running acumen and being able to uh, read balls off the bat. Uh, and you know, I think Farris's article was uh, yeah, pretty interesting. And you know, watching Jaso last year in Seattle. Uh, I certainly saw times where he would, you know, steal a base surprisingly or, uh, you know, go from second to home on a ball where you didn't necessarily expect the catcher to score. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, he's a, kind of an example of a guy who has, like, basically zero physical skills uh, in terms of base running and is actually a pretty competent base runner. Okay, yeah. I feel like there are, there are always a, uh, maybe a couple catchers who, who fall into that category, too. Um, yeah. Uh, the Molinas are not them, it turns out. No. <laughs> maybe Yadi Molina might be, but he's not that at all. Right. But uh, I think, you know, Jason Kendall, maybe another example. I mean, he wasn't as slow as most catchers, but he was a pretty good base runner in his day. And I wonder, I mean, it's kind of a thought experiment, but, you know, catchers seem to be uh, smarter than the average baseball player. It seems mm-hmm. they're in a position that requires some intellect. Maybe the intellect that goes along with handling a pitching staff and all the things that go along with catcher defense might also play into paying more attention on the bases or picking up, uh, you know, traits off the ball, uh, the ball hitting the bat and being able to read those things uh, faster than, you know, a guy who just goes up there and swings as hard as he can. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's sort of your job at some level as a catcher, right? I mean, or if not, like, you're constantly seeing what what batted balls look like. Uh, right. And, then, you know, I think there's probably some serious selection bias here, too, right, where, like, catchers are going to be selected for being very detail-oriented people. I mean, you know, if you're not detail-oriented, catching is probably not for you. Right. Uh, and, you know, detail-oriented people are probably, I mean, this is very gen- generic, but, you know, probably would be better at base running given the same level of, uh, you know, training and, and athleticism. It seems like being detail-oriented would help you in base running. Uh, also seems like it's selection bias because catchers are likely to be the slowest people. True. Do so we have layers? Yeah. That we, we've made a, we've made a, a, a sandwich. Uh, <laughs> delicious club sandwich. Sounds, sounds delicious. Yeah, very tasty. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure the deli is going to put this on and make lots of money. The selection bias. Yeah, selection bias. Yeah. Now, if you were to 
Um, no, so on the other side, player right. who appeared to have physical skills, but maybe uh, just didn't, they didn't. The game didn't come to him naturally. <laughs> yeah, I think like these guys are kind of fun, right? So there's always these guys who are like super fast. And you look at him and like he's going to be a fantastic base runner, and then you look at his totals and he's uh, really atrocious. Um, uh, I guess uh, Tony Womack, I believe, was kind of like this. Okay, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm going off memory, so I could be completely wrong, and maybe Tony Womack was an awesome base runner. But I think Tony Womack was not very good at stealing bases, even though he was very fast. I think he had like a career 65% success rate or something. Right, right. Uh, um, there are certainly guys like that. Uh, you know, thanks for putting me on the spot and making me pick them off the top of my head. But I'm going to go with Tony Womack as my final answer, and you know, hopefully the people who have access to the internet will come up with better ones in the comment section. Yeah, and in fact, brief research reveals that Tony Womack was uh, 56 runs above average. Uh, yeah. Well, there you go. My, my memory is atrocious. <laughs> <laughs> this was a really good game of gotcha. Well, no, who knows? Uh, so. Um, he had some some good he had some uh, some pretty good stolen base years and um, yeah, they were pretty good so, but so, uh, you know a bunch of it came from that um, but I guess that's another thing too and that's actually uh, this is always a thing that I, I suppose that happens with stats as they come along right is you know so base we've had the base running metric available maybe two or three years now is that is that about right uh, we've had. Ultimate base running, yeah, for a couple years now. For yeah. a couple years now, and yeah. so then you start to see it's like, oh, who's the good base runner th- this year? You know, and then you look this up. But f- for those years when the stat did not exist, or you know, we weren't measuring that in a, in a way that <clears throat> the way that we guard sort of m- most responsible now, and also which includes the sort of just you know raw data that may not always have been available. It, it's hard to recalibrate your uh, mind. I guess, for players that have played in the past. Right. And I think, you know, I mean, remembering back to, like, you know, not my childhood, but when I first started really getting into baseball, the guys I remember as, like, speed threats were guys like Luis Castillo and Tom Brian McRae, and, and, you know, like, with, again, going from memory, and I could be totally wrong, I kind of remember all these guys being pretty efficient and, like, pretty good base runners. Uh, Chuck Knobloch was another guy who I think uh, had some, you know, significant base stealing value. Um, but, you know, my memory could also be playing with me, and maybe all those guys were atrocious base runners. I don't know. I just had an idea was Gary Pettis, but he was also quite good. He was very fast. Um, and right. Also, uh, Ot- Ot- Otis Nixon might be a fun one to look up. Okay, well, let's just look at the uh, Internet for a while uh, right. during the yeah. podcast. Look, no, nothing is better than a podcast of hearing someone listen to look up things on the Internet. Uh, Otis Nixon big, big was, rating was worth 47 above average, but he was negative right. 7, at least so far as the defensive metrics we have. Which is uh, you know pre-UZR, but uh, he was negative seven fielding, which is uh, perhaps a surprise. Oh, I, don't know. I think he didn't. He couldn't throw, right? Wasn't Otis Nixon like one of the, like the pre-Johnny Damon? Like, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's good range and like rolled the ball back in the infield. Right. Um, but uh, we've actually uh, I just uncovered a couple of things that uh, seemed that might be uh, ripe for mining in terms of, in particular, in terms of off-season posts, uh, which is to look at um, look at players who were either relatively good or relatively bad base runners relative to their sort of native physical talents. Uh, right. that, that one. And then also just base base runners of the past from what we can tell about them uh, and how they may, may or may not uh, – um, how, the, how their, the, their product may or may not – or their finished product may or may not uh, reflect our memories of them. I look forward to the waves of traffic coming to read these posts in the off season. Yeah. Like the people who are going to be like, "Oh, a Tony Womack base running post." I'm yeah. there. 
Yeah, we're going right. to be rolling in money from all the Maybe Matt Clausen to write that. I think he does. Uh, he does a lot in, in, in that way. This does seem like a Matt Clausen. I, I like. To, I don't know if you saw on Tango Tiger's website over the uh, weekend. Someone referenced something he wrote as saying Matt Cleveland of Fangraphs, which I thought mm-hmm. was uh, uh, kind of fun. And he got like one or you know three letters of his last name right. Yeah. Right. Well, Cleveland was it? Cleveland, like K L E E S E M A N. So okay, you yeah. know, there's oh, there a quote and a man, but everything in between was very wrong. All right. Well, let's uh, um, let's rewind considerably uh, to a point. To uh, back to a quote from your piece, which was this one: uh, "It wouldn't actually, or it would actually be unusual if someone wasn't held responsible for a 140 million dollar failure." Yeah. Uh, what is the history of that? Um, and I guess it's not necessarily 140 million dollars as a as an absolute figure. But wherever that places the angels, uh, sort of uh, among the rankings of, of uh, payrolls overall, what, do, do we have a sense? Do you have a, uh, a like a, an off-the-cuff sense of um, what happens when that team finishes below 500? Uh, what percentage of the time the GM is fired or the manager is fired? Or because uh, you can't fire an owner, I guess that's one advantage to that position. Right. Yeah, I think uh, you know there probably haven't been that many. Uh, instances of a team with $140 million failing that spectacularly because that's kind of a new payroll threshold over the last few years. I mean, it, you know, even 10 years ago, $140 million would have been the highest payroll in baseball pretty easily. So uh, I think what we're kind of looking at is, you know, when you put like, kind of that arbitrary figure out there, you're, you're really limiting it to just the last few years. But I think we can see, like, the, the Phillies this year just fired Charlie Manuel. Uh, it seems like Ruben Amaro is probably going to survive, but he, was, he, he fired his manager as kind of like a, you know, even though this wasn't your fault and you didn't sign Ryan Howard for a lot of money, you're going to take the fall for the fact that we have a really expensive team that isn't very good. And then, you know, last year the Red Sox were, you know, maybe the most obvious uh, example of what happened where uh, Bobby Valentine got canned after one year and they traded away all the players. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, Bill Vivesi in 2008, I believe that was the first team uh, to have a $100 million payroll and 100 losses in the same season, not mm-hmm. the kind of double-double you want to go for, and that was his last season as a general manager. Um, so I think, you know, in general, if you're going to run a $130, $140 million payroll nowadays, that's kind of signifying to your fan base that you're going for it. This isn't the kind of payroll that you run when you're rebuilding. Uh, you know, it's not kind of like, oh, we just have all these contracts, and we don't think we're going to win, but we just kind of have them around. Like, that's the kind of payroll you run when you're trying to win the World Series, and if you uh, finish with a losing record in a year you were trying to win – your owner is probably going to say, whose fault is this, and find someone to take the blame. If you were going to try to produce, of course we do this sort of um, anecdotally anyway, but if you were going to try to produce an algorithm um, which might allow you to predict what teams might be firing their manager or general manager, what what inputs would you use? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting question. I think, you know, you'd certainly want to use uh, years... um, in their current position, right? So, like, there's a shelf life on managers and general managers where they just don't generally last very long, uh, but they usually get, like, some kind of minimum honeymoon period. So, uh, you know, if you had a team, and this is kind of the interesting thing with DePoto, is he's in his second year as GM of the Angels, and so it's a little unusual to fire a guy two years into, uh, you know, his kind of organizational overhaul, uh, but both of his years haven't been as successful as they should have been, you know, given their payroll levels, and I think they've been considered a disappointing team in both years. Uh, so for DePoto, I think, you know, he would maybe break the algorithm and that you'd probably say, 
GMs with less than three years on the job are probably safe, or a manager with less than two years on the job is probably safe. Usually you don't just get one and out like Bobby Valentine did. Uh, so that would, I think, number of years in job would also, it would be a weird curve, right? Because then at like six or seven years, even if you're successful, it might be getting to the point where, you know, maybe you need a new voice in the clubhouse, kind of a Terry Francona thing, where, you know, he won a couple World Series with Boston, and then they decided he needed to go because they had one bad year. Um, so I think, you know, number of years on the job would be a, a significant variable. Payroll would be a significant variable. Obviously, winning percentage would be a huge one. Um, so I think with those three factors, you could probably do an okay job of trying to figure out which teams were likely to to make a change in the front office or the manager level. You mentioned with regard to uh, to Fer- Terry Francona, of course, um, they were mostly successful. They had that uh, they had the year um, well, two years ago, 2011, when they had something above a 90 percent uh, chance of making the playoffs, and then they did not, and that was that sort of one magical night. Um, well, you know, depending on wh- from which fan base you, you come. Uh, if you're listening to this, you, or if, if you're alive, you're probably uh, more likely to be in the Red Sox fan base than the Tampa Bay Rays, um, just because that's how the numbers work. But uh, that that likely did not uh, did not help him out, um, and, and, of course, he was uh, dismissed after that. But I... I it, you don't see managers typically released or fired the year the year that they win or the the off season after they win a World Series. Um, you think that there's at least one year of buffer. Do you think there's two years of buffer um, after World Series championship? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, I think Bill Simmons might have come up with something like like ten years ago, right? Like a grace period or something. Like after you win a World Series or a World Championship of some sort, like there's some I don't remember if you did two years, three years, five years, whatever it was, there was some, like, window of time where everything you did after that was okay because you were still basking in your championship glory. Uh, you know, maybe that didn't hold over for the Red Sox so well. Their last World Series was in 2007, and then, I mean, you know, I guess 2011 was four years later. So there was, uh, you know, certainly some honeymoon period. Uh, but I think, you know, you're certainly right that there the epic collapse and kind of the, the, you know, the chicken and beer and all the off-the-field stuff, uh, played a large part in Francona's dismissal, and I think working that into an algorithm would be difficult. I mean, like, did managers send half-naked pictures to people on the Internet that got published on Deadspin equals yes, so I mean, that's not an easy thing to code. Yeah, I'm not going to code it. The uh, So yeah. years on job, uh, payroll win percentage. You mentioned that, uh, that the GM might have slightly uh, longer than the manager, the field manager. Yeah. The, uh, of course, the Angels are a strange case as far as that's concerned, uh, and I should say yeah, that seems that seems to make sense to me. The Angels are a strange case because they have um, one of the most sort of uh, high-profile managers in the game, and then a, a GM who does not have a lot of experience, uh, even though this is his, the second team for which he's been a GM. Right. Well, he was kind of an interim GM in Arizona. I mean, that wasn't a position where he got hired to take over the job. Right. He kind of just replaced Kevin Powers when Powers left. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think Sochev's contract but Burns. Is he, no, he replaced Burns when Burns left. And then resume. Uh, yes. Yeah. No. I don't Arizona. Remember. There's like a Arizona there's a weird, like love triangle between San Diego and Arizona where they just keep trading executives and they can't keep track of who is there. So, so first of all, it's it's a it's a, a, a triangle with two two points. <laughs> right. <laughs> the line. I believe that's called. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first thing. Second of all, yeah, it was. So what happened was you're right. The Burns was going back and forth. I think that Depoto was there. And then Depoto was hired as assistant to Burns. Burns left. Burns left. 
uh, right, Depoto took over, and then Towers, who uh, and recently... And then Towers took Depoto's job, right? Right, precisely. Yeah. yeah. So it was like Towers had worked for both. Depoto's only worked for Arizona, and I believe, for Yeah, I believe so. Uh, I can yeah, check that out. Right. I was looking at... That was crazy NLF teams when they're, they're rotating wheel of executives. Right, but the weird... So the strange thing with Depoto is, right, like, I, I'm curious just briefly about his resume... Um, you know the the pools and the Hamilton deals are the big ones. Uh, Wilson's obviously part of that. Uh, with when he's with the Angels, he's also traded Dan Heron twice. Yeah. Um, so he didn't. I don't think he likes Dan Heron. Did not care for Dan Heron. Uh, the the yeah. first that first Dan Heron trade, however, um, even though even though Dan Heron went on to have success with the Angels after Depoto traded him, uh, netted, I believe Patrick Corbin, who's one of the best yeah. pitchers in Major League Baseball this year, um, and. Um, Tyler Skaggs. Tyler Skaggs, who uh, um, is, a, is it's a prospect of some note. Yeah. You're right, prospect of some note, right. Uh, so that wasn't that bad. But uh, Depoto's resume. What what else do we have besides? You, you said that you said uh, in your in your piece that you can make an argument that every acquisition that he's made, um, you can make a decent case against almost every acquisition that he's made since uh, since he took over with the Angels. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at his track record with Anaheim, I mean, his deals haven't been like. You know, there's no Ryan Howard contracts in there, even though the Pools and Hamilton contracts look like them now. They were, you know, there were arguments in favor of those players at the time. They turned out very poorly. But I mean, I think the C.J. Wilson contract was uh, maybe a little bit more than people expected for, uh, you know, a pitcher with a pretty short track record of success. I like C.J. Wilson. I think I ended that contract, but it wasn't necessarily a bargain of any of any sort. Um, and, you know, it's, it's spending a lot of money uh, to um, bring in Joe Blanton and Tommy Hansen as like you know, any leaders to make up the back of your rotation when you're concerned about rotation depth was, you know, a curious choice. I mean, I think, you know, Joe Blanton's kind of a guy that, like, Fangraphs likes more than the average fan, but he's not a guy that, you know, you would look at and say, oh, Joe Blanton, we know exactly what we're getting from him. He's a, you know, a little bit of a lottery ticket in that his uh, homer to fly ball rate and his uh, ERA and X have hardly ever match up. And so, you know, you're betting on some potential there at the, that the walk and strikeout rates will eventually take over, uh, but he's been wildly inconsistent, and you know he continued this year uh, in that trend. So you know to say that you're going to try and stabilize your rotation with a broken down pitcher and a guy whose ERA is a run and a half higher than his uh, peripherals uh, is a little strange, especially when you have no rotation depth whatsoever. Um, but I think you know when you look at kind of the construction of the team and the guys he's gone after, uh, you know you can see some thought process there that makes sense. I think we liked the gamble on Ryan Madsen, but Madsen's been hurt all year, so that didn't work out. Um, and then, you know, like I think when you just kind of look at the Angels' overall depth, there aren't pieces there. He hasn't made the kinds of moves that reinforce against the risk that he took, right? So you, you sign a whole bunch of older injury-prone guys, uh, and then they don't work out, and you've got nothing behind them. You know, if you're going to find those kinds of guys in the first place, you should make sure you kind of reinforce your roster with depth, not just keep, keep trading your farm system in order to rent that Granky for three months and, and try and make a run at the playoffs, and it probably wasn't realistic anyway. Right. Okay. Um, well, that's uh, that's good enough for uh, for the Angels for now. Do you do you have any sense of uh, by the end of it? Um, I guess between Depoto and Socha, who will be with the team in 2014? I'm going to guess Depoto goes. Socha's got a really monstrous contract for a for a manager. I think he makes like something like eight million dollars a year or something. Uh, he, there's a lot of money left on that deal, and uh, he's got. Um, significant play in the organization still, uh, even though DePoto was brought in to kind of tame that a little bit. Uh, you know, Sosha is cer- certainly a vibrant personality who's not going to just take the back seat and, and go quietly. Uh, DePoto is probably much easier to fire 
Uh, and I think, you know, realistically, DePoto doesn't necessarily have the track record that Socha does, where he could say, oh, man, you can't replace me with another GM because I'm really good at my job. And I don't think that DePoto really has a lot of things to point to and say, here's why I should stay, where at least Socha can say, hey, look, you know, I had a 10-year track record um, before you brought this clown in. Uh, you know, I did, I did a lot of winning. My team kept, you know, beating their Pythagorean records. I got a World Series. Like, you know, I think Socha's got some reasons to justify his remaining in place, where DePoto is just kind of like, well, yeah, I've only been here two years. Um, I, wanted, I want to touch on one thing before. You, you've basically fulfilled your obligation this week. Um, and uh, and what a job. What a job, Dave Cameron. Um, but you Thanks. and I, uh, uh, before we, we spoke here today, we, we thought that um, we might at least touch on the, the uh, situation, I guess, on one level, um, what it, what essentially what is the National League Cy Young race, um, such as it is, you know, or if that even exists, if it is a race, because um, of course Clayton Kershaw uh, has been quite good this year, but um, but of course uh, by war, by wins above replacement, as informed by FIP, fielding independent yeah. pitching, which accounts uh, merely for strikeouts, walks, and home runs. Uh, by that, uh, Matt Harvey is the top pitcher in the National League, in the majors, really. Uh, he has a 6.2 war, yeah. whereas Clayton Kershaw has a 5.5 war. Those are close enough so that in most seasons you'd say, well, let's we'll bucket them, essentially. They're in the same right. batch of pitchers. You know, sort of yeah. pick, if you feel like one deserves it more than the other, go for it. Now, but uh, by war that is informed by runs allowed, um, Clayton Kershaw has a decided advantage. Uh, he is the best in the majors at 7.9. Uh, Matt Harvey is nearly two full wins behind him in second place with 6.0. Now, that latter one, the allowing the runs, we could say ultimately yeah. this is the thing that matters. Right. But we can also say, yes, uh, however, uh, there are elements in here which uh, are, we do not – there are elements of run prevention um, that are have nothing to do with the pitcher. Or and then there's a gray area, which is to say we don't know to what degree this has to do with the pitcher, like uh, you know, bat a, uh, batting average and ball in play. We don't know always right. how what can sort of control the pitcher has. So right. your I guess your current statement on that at the moment is uh, is what I'm curious about. Yeah, I think when I wrote the kind of uh, postseason award race update uh, last week. I noted that I thought Kershaw was going to win both the Cy Young and maybe the NL MVP, and I don't think it's going to be particularly close to Cy Young. I think Harvey's going to finish a distant second. Uh, you know, he might not even get a single first place vote. I mean, I think Kershaw's going to lead the league in innings and then might post an ERA under two, which is, you know, basically a guaranteed walk that he's going to win the Cy Young. Uh, but I do think it was a thing, you know, Buster only tweeted out, uh, the factoid about Harvey being first in pitcher war over the weekend and, uh, a lot of people started pinging me or the Fangraphs Twitter account about how ridiculous our pitcher war is that Kershaw's not first. And I think the psychology of this is interesting in that people have basically decided that because Kershaw has a 1.72 ERA, any pitching metric you devise that does not have Kershaw, uh, as the best pitcher in baseball this year is inherently wrong. Like there, it's not open for discussion. It's not a, um, you know, it's not an area of interest. It's just, this is the truth, and if your metric doesn't uh, reflect that truth, then then your metric is invalid, and I won't pay attention to it. While I think you know, there's an interesting conversation to be had, and you know, Tango posted something about Max Scherzer and Felix Fernandez on his blog over the weekend that kind of touches on the same points. Is uh, 
you know, if we didn't start at runs allowed, if, if this wasn't kind of our conditioned metric of choice for pitchers over the last, you know, 50 years, whatever it is, uh, where we believed that ERA or runs allowed even was kind of the way to evaluate pitchers and then work backwards from there, uh, would we see things differently? And I think we, we might. I mean, I think, uh, you know, with Kershaw, uh, you know, part of the reason he has a 1.72 ERA is because no one ever gets hits off of him when there's men on base. So he's stranding a ridiculously high percentage of his base runners. And you can say, okay, well, maybe I think sequencing is a real skill, and Kershaw just is really good at pitching out of the stretch. And uh, Fulham actually wrote about this last week of, you know, maybe he hides the ball really well, uh, and there's some deception, and, and which allows him to be really tough to pick up when there's men on base. And therefore, this is something Kershaw is doing. There's also the possibility that his, his defense has been exceptional for him in those situations. Uh, Ken Rosenball mentioned today that uh, Juan Uribe have a fantastic, like, plus 25 UVR at third base this year. Uh, and, you know, I don't think anyone looks at Juan Uribe and thinks he's an amazing defensive third baseman, but, you know, he's a former shortstop who's playing a corner position and over, like, almost 3,000 innings his career, UVR 150 at the position, like, plus 16. I think Uribe is the kind of guy who could make a pretty big impact on a, you know, left-handed pitcher where there's a lot of uh, right-handers pulling the ball down the third base line. Maybe Uribe has just made a lot of those plays with runners on base, and that's happened to, you know, play a large part in Kershaw's training those runners. How we separate out that value is, is not so easy, and I think uh, not that I, I would vote for Clayton Kershaw. I think he's probably been better than that Harvey. I do think sequencing matters. I do think that pitchers have some control over their hits and balls in play. Uh, but I, I do think that, you know, in the same way, uh, I feel bad when people look at the, you know, Harvey being .7 ahead of Kershaw in, in pitcher war and decide, oh, stat heads are stupid, they don't know what they're talking about, when it's actually kind of an interesting discussion and, and one that, you know, I wish people were more willing to engage in. Yeah, I mean, well, how about this? If you had to, this is perhaps a different way to look at, um, the, well, maybe not the, the Cy Young winner, but in terms of evaluating the best pitcher in the league, right? If you if you were going to, if you could uh, start one of the two in a game, who would it be? Uh, I mean, I think Clayton Kershaw is the best pitcher in baseball. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, you can ask me Clayton Kershaw versus anyone. I would take Clayton Kershaw. Uh, and I think, you know, there's a pretty strong argument to be made that uh, the FIP-based war is undervaluing Clayton Kershaw. He's been outpitching his FIP basically since he got into the major leagues. He's the kind of pitcher that we I think we expect to outpitch his FIP and that he's left-handed and he gets a lot of strikeouts and he pitches up in the zone and he gets some fly balls. And uh, I think, you know, there's evidence that shows that Kershaw's true talent, uh, batting average on balls in play, is below the league average. And so, uh, you know, a FIP-based war is going to undersell him. But I also think that, you know, that's the kind of thing that we uh, can say we don't have to be a slave to the specifics and we can, you know, note that. So, you know, just because Kershaw is behind Matt Harvey in a fit-based war doesn't mean that I necessarily think that Matt Harvey's had a better year. Uh, that's kind of the implication that some people make about stat heads is we just, you know, we look at war and that's the end of it and there's no conversation from there. I think, you know, we're reasonable human beings. Uh, we can look at it and say, you know what, this is probably a flaw in war, and, and Kershaw is probably being undervalued here, just like I think Yadier Molina is undervalued in war, uh, and any good defensive catcher is. I mean, I think that we know that war is not perfect, and this is an example of when war is not perfect. But it, it does bring up an interesting question of how much credit we want to give Kershaw for really low batting average on balls in play in critical situations, and this plays into the AL as well, as Tango wrote with Felix and Scherzer, you know, how much credit do you want to give for 
you know, there's a bases loaded play and a, a third baseman makes a diving stop, uh, you know, makes a force play at third and stops the run from scoring, uh, you know, was that on the pitcher? Was that on the defender? How are you giving up that credit where the runs allowed just gives it all to the pitcher and Fitz gives it all to the fielder? Uh, the truth lies somewhere in between, um, but it seems like, you know, for the most part, people just take one side or the other. It's noteworthy, and I don't know if it's entirely related, to what degree it's related to this discussion. It's noteworthy that Ricky Nolasco, who for years has been famous uh, for posting ERAs um, above his uh, defense independent numbers, has uh, not done that since moving to the Dodgers. In fact, is outperforming both his FIP and his XFIP uh, by a considerable margin. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the Dodgers are kind of fascinating, right? And we don't look at them and think, like, oh, this is a really good defensive team. I mean, if Matt Kemp occasionally playing center, he's kind of terrible out there. Andre Ethier is not very good in the, in the corner spot. Um, this is not a team that you look at and say, you know, Hanley Ramirez at shortstop. Uh, but I think, you know, Uribe is an underrated defender. Adrian Gonzalez is a good defensive first baseman. Mark Ellis is a very good defensive second baseman. Uh, obviously we have Carl Crawford in left field who's outstanding. I think the Dodgers are a better defensive team than they get credit for. And this is probably making a larger impact on Kershaw than people might think. Yeah, it's sort of strange. And you mentioned easier, perhaps not always a great corner outfielder, has played quite a bit of center recently. I guess yeah. it, it's strange, I suppose, when you have a team like the Dodgers, which has, um, sort of like, Players with excellent and then rather poor, in some cases, defensive reputations for their positions. Right. But they're all thrown onto the same field as opposed to a team that's completely average across the board. Right. I think, you know, people might have more extreme uh, positions based on a team that has Matt Kempton center field and just assume, like, oh, that can't be a good defensive team. And then maybe not look at the fact that, you know, if they have a shortstop playing third base and they have a guy at second base who probably could have played shortstop in most of his career if he had a better arm. Uh, and, you know, they have a center fielder in left. I mean, there's some, you know, pretty good defensive players on the Dodgers, even if they also have some pretty bad defensive players. Yeah, Carl Crawford's good at baseball. He's he's good again. He's good. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, he's not uh, he's not scaled the heights like he has in the past, but uh, rather good. Anyway, you're uh, you're totally done, uh, Dave Cameron. Thank you for uh, thank you for contributing and talking about uh, well various issues, I guess, related to the Angels, mostly Los Angeles. We were uh, we were all up there in the in Los Angeles. Very very West Coast bias. Yeah, totally West Coast bias on this on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's what we're gonna do. We're done. You're done. Thank you, thank you, Dave Cameron. Thank you. Yeah, that's been uh, managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.